Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Britain Dennis Morley was one of hundreds of prisoners of war aboard the Japanese freighter and troop ship the Lisbon Maru when it was sunk by a US submarine in 1942 en route to Japan from Hong Kong. He survived the Battle of Hong Kong, the Lisbon Maru sinking, and his subsequent years of slave labor in a Japanese dockyard. He died in January at the age of 101. I met Dennis Morley a couple of times when he came to Hong Kong about 15 years ago, but war historian Tony Bannum knew him well and had many conversations with him about his life and wartime experiences. I knew Dennis for probably almost 20 years. I first came across him rather unusually. He was very technically active and he posted a question on a website somewhere about his best friend Paul Connolly who was executed by the Japanese. And I replied to him and we just started corresponding from there and later meeting. I met him once or twice, I think twice, and I always found him warm, friendly, communicative. He was a great traveler. Um I don't know how many times he came back to Hong Kong after the war, but he visited us here at our home twice. And of course he went back to Japan as well. He was planning a further trip to Japan in 2012 when he had the accident and couldn't travel. But by that time he was already 90 years old plus, so he had a remarkable life. How did he regard the fact that I mean it, it, with him you had a situation where he survived multiple events really and then of course as you say he had this friend Paul who died uh, mm -hmm. and was killed at uh, age 22 which must have markedly affected him Absolutely. despite the fact that he'd already seen multiple people die uh, both in in the battle and also probably in the prisoner of war camp I I think the fact that it was an execution and the fact that Paul and his buddies were betrayed sat very heavily on Dennis. He was quite an emotional chap, not not on the surface, you wouldn't always notice, but but that really weighed on him his entire life. And even when I first started talking to him about his experiences, that more than once he had nightmares again, and more than once he regretted going back over those years. It had a a lifetime effect on almost all the survivors. Yes, I think I I think the 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 fact that a number of them that I had the privilege of meeting as they came back through and they were off in their late 70s by then and uh, this was their their last chance really to revisit some of these sites and there was definitely how would i say a sort of psychological offloading going mm -hmm. on there perhaps before they felt that they um they wanted to do it before they died but so uh, you f you felt that by the fact that he revisited those ghosts in essence probably was difficult for him it was certainly difficult uh, and you're absolutely right most of these old men who i knew the old boys up to the age of perhaps 70 75 they didn't really want to revisit the time at all they just put it all behind them then there came a point where they felt they had been forgotten and that people would forget what they went through and at that point many of them started opening up but then they hit the emotional roadblocks and that was certainly true of Dennis and Dennis i think didn't really start to come to any closure until his visit to Japan and that was very successful I found that remarkable in the sense that I can understand why people you know he talked to me and he said you know it's modern Japan it's the young Japanese but it went beyond that I mean it wasn't just oh let's do an act of reconciliation I mean he made very firm friends he he certainly did uh he went there with his daughter as you know his daughter and granddaughter and the three of them were treated like royalty and Dennis was so surprised that the younger generation would be so open and would be so interested in his story And after that he became very binary in his approach to Japan from Dennis's point of view the young people he thought were fantastic and admirable 
And the old people, I think he hated until his last day. And again, it goes back to his personal experience and the death of Paul Connolly and everything he saw and went through. If we go back to when he is a young bandsman, I mean, if we can go through Dennis's life, where, where did he come from? I mean, he comes here in 1937, so he's a bit, a bit ahead of the Japanese military invasion, but where was he born? Well, he was a young Londoner and he went to school, I believe he left school quite early and started as an apprentice at Phillips Radio, but he really wanted to travel. And in those days, as a young man from a relatively poor background, that meant the services. You joined the Navy or you joined the Army or the RAF. But in Dennis's case, of course, he signed up with the Royal Scots. And he came to Hong Kong as a bandsman, a very young bandsman. In fact, if you look at photographs of that time, he looks like he was 14 or 15. He wasn't. He was a, an older teenager, but he looked so young. And he had a wonderful time. At that time, Hong Kong and Shanghai, but particularly Hong Kong, were the prized postings of the British Army. A young man from a poor background in the UK could have a really nice time in Hong Kong. Uh, so they, they had a wild time in those years. <laughs> uh, when you say you was a bandsman, what did you play? You know, I can't remember. Uh, I certainly remember it as a piece of brass, but I cannot remember uh, what okay. it was. Yeah. If you're a bandsman with the Royal Scots, would you have been also trained militarily? Oh, absolutely. Um, we, you know, the, in the army, you're always a soldier first. So, so these guys were soldiers who also played an instrument. But for the band, playing an instrument meant a lot of external events. One thing Dennis always remembered was playing with the Royal Scots Band on the deck of HMS Eagle when the aircraft carrier visited Hong Kong. It must have been very shortly before the outbreak of war. So they had a good time. They met lots of people. And Dennis had many firm friends in the community in Hong Kong who were not military people. Interesting. Um, so they, they obviously were allowed out as such and, and into the yeah. community. So he's here in 1937. So where would he have been in barracks and things here? Well, initially, they would have been in Sham Shui Po. Um, so when they returned there as prisoners of war, then Dennis would have known the barracks very well. Of course, what they returned to after the fighting in 1941 was nothing like the quality of barracks they had left. The whole place had been stripped of everything that the local people could remove. When the Japanese invasion took place, I think everybody in Hong Kong knew they were in for a really hard time, and for natural reasons they grabbed whatever they could. So the Sham Shui Po barracks by the end of 1941, beginning of 42, when they became a prisoner of war camp, were extremely unpleasant to live in. He's born in 1919 or 20? He was born in 1919, so he passed away on January the 3rd. So he was 101 in October 2020, so he made it to 101 in roughly three months. That's an incredible duration. Well, considering all he went through and the number of times he survived incidents that cost other people's lives, it is absolutely amazing. Can you describe to me, with the Royal Scots, what his role would have been or where he would have been during the defence of Hong Kong in December 1941? Well, as a bandsman, he was in the headquarters company of the Royal Scots. And that meant initially he was on the, the Jindrinkers line across the new, new territories at the time of the Japanese attack. And I know from his descriptions that he was involved in, in heavy fighting there and on Golden Hill uh, as the, the line collapsed back towards Kowloon. When they were evacuated, they then spent a week on Hong Kong Island while it was being softened up by the Japanese with artillery and bombing. And then, of course, they were based in Wong Ne Chong Gap when the Japanese invaded Hong Kong Island. And it was in the fighting round there, which was the heaviest fighting Hong Kong saw on December the 19th, 1941, where some 450 of the garrison were killed and many more were wounded. That's where Dennis had some sort of combat fatigue. Uh, at the time, he told me that it was, uh, it was called malaria when he was taken to St Albert's Hospital. But looking back on it, he sees that as being combat fatigue. 
Meaning just complete exhaustion from day in, day out? Well, they were exhausted. They'd been fighting on the new territories, fighting and preparing to fight in Hong Kong Island, and then very intense fighting in Wan Nei Chong Gap. He probably hadn't slept for two or three days, I would think, something like 72 hours. And again, he was a very young man. They probably weren't getting food and, and drink, as they would expect. So it was obviously a very tough period. How did he describe the actual fighting? Bloody was the word he used. As I said, it was very heavy. The Royal Scots were, were in the thick of it, especially around the Mount Nicholson area uh, and defending that, that side of Wong Nei Chong Gap. And obviously, Dennis again lost, lost many friends, either killed or wounded. But the most interesting thing that he recalled was being at St Albert's Convent, which became an emergency hospital. It's now where the Adventist Hospital is today, when the Japanese burst in there. Now, that was quite a story. The thing was that all these wounded men were lying around in their beds and suddenly the Japanese burst in. Now there had already been massacres in hospitals and of course the men there had no defence and they were convinced that they were going to die. But then the Japanese soldiers found a body of one of their officers who died in that hospital having been recovered as an injured man by one of the Middlesex Regiment and brought in there. But when he died, a very fast-thinking British nurse called Mary Curry had the presence of mind to wrap his body in a Japanese flag. And when the Japanese saw that, and it was said it was actually the brother of the Japanese officer who found the body, then they changed their attitude entirely, and they saw the respect under their officer, and nobody was killed or hurt at St Albert's Covent. And that's where Dennis was? That's where Dennis was, and he saw the whole thing. And I believe it was me who told him that it was the nurse Mary Curry who deserved congratulations for that. And in fact, she was given a medal post-war. So, I mean, I'm discovering today that um, I already thought that, that I could think of about three episodes where Dennis cheats death. Well, I think we're up to seven or eight now. And I remember talking to a Hollywood scriptwriter about this some years back and describing to him the number of times these men went out of the fire, into the frying pan, out of the fire, into the frying pan. Uh, and he said, from a Hollywood perspective, it's just an unbelievable story because it's like a funnel. You start off with a very wide funnel with 14,000 defenders of the garrison, and then at each step down in the funnel, each of these incidents, you lose more and more men, and you end up with just, just a handful surviving and going back to the UK. Uh, and he found that to be a very compelling story. I can't imagine what Dennis went through, actually, uh, in terms of, you know, this young man who's come out for a bit of adventure, really, uh, to see something different. He's joined the military as a form of, uh, of a way to get some travel, um, coming from a poor background in London, and then he's seeing these young men die. The fact that he'd become a soldier, I mean, in terms of patriotism, in terms of... Where, where, would, where did he stand on things like that? You know, I think like a lot of men who went through that sort of experience... They became very jaded about the idea of nationalism and patriotism. Yes, they were proud to have fought the fascists, no doubt about that, but that did not mean they were flag-waving <laughs> nationalists, uh, as, you, as you might expect. And in fact, initially at least, Dennis had very little to do with the military after the war, or any commemoration or societies and so forth. Uh, I think, as I said, he was very jaded by the, by the whole experience. To many of that generation, and even the previous generation, Nationalism meant fields of crosses more than anything else. So you've got him, as you say, arriving in Hong Kong by ship, I assume. Do you, yes. do you know about that? Uh, absolutely by ship, absolutely, yes. Yeah. I, can't, I can't remember the name of it, but I can look it up. And, uh, so it's here by ship. So already, I'm actually thinking about his great, but you know, apart from the horrors that follow, he's, he's already, he's, he's probably going out to Southampton or whatever, and then, then all of these multiple stops on the way. Well, yes, and initially, of course, they're in India. So, so Dennis's first boat took him, the troop boat took him from the UK to India, and then later on the Royal Scots were redeployed to Hong Kong. 
But your, your point, I think, is, is actually worth drilling down in, into about what a different man Dennis was from the day he arrived, or the day he enlisted in the Royal Scots, to the day he finally got back to the UK. I don't believe it's possible to really gauge how much he must have changed, and, and every, every other survivor as well, but perhaps particularly those who are so young. So let's say he joined up at, I think it was 18 years of age or 17 years of age, and he gets home in 1945 at the age of 25. And yet he's now been through so much. He has a maturity and a level of experience and a background which makes him totally different to the young man he was when he left. And I think that fact changed his entire life. After Wong Nai Chung Gap, after the surrender, he's then put in Sham Shui Po. Did he talk to you about that? Uh, he did, not in great detail. I think many of his memories of those early POW days were really overridden by his memories of being a POW in Japan. Primarily what he remembered about Sham Shui Po was Paul Colony and his death. Now, Dennis and Paul had spoken about escape beforehand, and then, to Dennis's surprise, suddenly Paul did escape with six other of his compatriots, and they were all recaptured because they, they were betrayed, and they were told to pick straws. And the five guys with the shortest straws were then executed, and Paul was one of those. And that whole story, um, I think, dominated Dennis's entire experience of Sham Shui Po. But then, of course, you had the Lisbon Maru, and then we had Kobe House, which is a totally different experience. So would he have been made to witness the execution? I believe not. I believe uh, the, the survivors wrote about the executions afterwards and they, they were done outside the camp. And at the same time as the British were executed, four Canadian escapees from North Point were executed too, but again outside the camp. And so this young man, Paul, was also a Royal Scot? Actually, Paul was a local lad. He was in the Hong Kong Dockyard Defence Corps. So that's the early days at Sham Shui Po. And, of course, not much food. Now, Dennis at the time would have been working on Kai Tak? If he was, he never mentioned it. There were work parties, absolutely, from Sham Shui Po to Kai Tak and other sites. He remembered much more, though, the basic deprivations, the, the disease, the hunger, the deaths and the boredom, and perhaps most of all the boredom because people can adjust to an amazing degree to deprivations. But boredom, and especially at that age where you feel your life is just being wasted as a young man, I think in many cases that was the hardest thing to survive. Having said that, the diphtheria epidemic and the dysentery epidemics must have been terrible, absolutely shocking. Yes, because, I mean, any number of people died, didn't they? Uh, as many as seven per day in what was rel a relatively small POW camp. Uh, and deaths from diphtheria, where you choke yourself to death, and dysentery, where you become so weak you can't even get out of bed. I mean, there, there are not many worse ways to die than that. How many people went into Shamshipo? Probably about 7,000 all told. Of course, it wasn't as simple as everybody going to Sham Shui Po. There were a number of different prisoner of war camps, as you know, and at different times, different camps had different numbers of people. And then, of course, starting in the middle or late 1942, the Japanese started shipping POWs over to Japan. Yes. Now, Dennis talked to me about that. He said, you know, because he regarded him, he was regarded as a bit fitter. Was it, is it true that there were actually sort of little fitness competitions or something for the Japanese to see who was fitter? Well, or sort of. The, the very first group to go, um, they were chosen by their officers, the, the first 600 to leave. That was a shipment before the Lisbon Maru. And what so the, their own British or...? Yeah. They were all British, absolutely. Yeah. And what the British officers did was simply pick the men they thought were toughest because they had no idea what conditions would be like in Japan, whether it would be better than Hong Kong, as many predicted, or worse. So they picked the troublemakers 
the guys who'd been in trouble with either the British authorities or the Japanese authorities, the fighters, the guys who could look after themselves. So that, that was the first lot to leave, uh, 600 men. And the Japanese, having seen the success of that transportation, then demanded more. So the Japanese were keen to have fit men. So it was a sort of Darwinian effect. If you were young and relatively healthy, then you went on the boats. What did Dennis tell you about boarding the Lisbon Maroon at sailing out of Hong Kong? Well, initially, of course, for Dennis, it was, in a way, another adventure. And I'm sure they were glad to be out of Sham Shui Po. And they didn't really know what to expect. But initially, of course, it all went very smoothly. They had food, they had drink, the officers had got them cigarettes. And in the first few days, men were allowed on deck during the day. It must have been quite a relief compared to Sham Shui Po, those first few days. So this is late September this is, 1942? Exactly. This is late, late September 1942. The weather's not too bad. The sea's relatively calm and you know, they're out of camp. It must have been a, a, like a holiday for them initially. As you say, they're allowed on deck initially. But being a Royal Scot, where would Dennis have been in the holds? He would have been at the bottom of the second hold. Now, the Lisbon Maru was at that date a 20-year-old cargo ship. It was not designed for holding humans. The Japanese had made some modifications, added toilets and things like that, what well, if you can call them toilets. But essentially, men were stacked like cargo and the decks were very, very full. So the impression that I have is that they would go down a ladder to the bottom of, as you say, what, what would have been used for, I don't know, boxes, grain, whatever. Coal, whatever. Um, two ladders, one, one ladder down to the first level and another ladder down to the bottom. And it must have really smelled bad because the ship had been carrying whatever cargo for years, had rats, plenty of seawater in the bottom of the hold. But again, in those early days, at least they could get outside into the fresh air. Lisbon Maru travels out of Hong Kong. It's going up the east coast of China with its eventual destination of Japan. And what did, specifically in Dennis's view, what did he tell you about what then occurred? Of course, because on October the 1st, the Lisbon Maru, as a troop carrier, uh, even though it's an ex-cargo ship, would be targeted and torpedoed by the USS Garupa, a US submarine that didn't know that these nearly 2,000 prisoners of war are on board. But from Dennis's perspective, what did he tell you? Well, Dennis and the other POWs, of course, they knew Japanese troops were on board. There were probably 600, 700 of them. And they probably also knew, I don't remember Dennis telling me this directly, but they probably also knew that the rear holds were full of war cargo. So artillery shells and iron ore and things like that. So they knew they were a potential military target. Now, when the, the group of the SS-214 saw them, they saw... I mean, they, they were... That submarine was stationed off Shanghai, especially to find that sort of ship moving Japanese troops and Japanese goods back towards Japan. So they saw it as being another cargo ship, and they fired six torpedoes at it. Now, those old torpedoes were rubbish. They really were bad. And by great misfortune, one of them actually hit the Lisbon Maru and blew a large hole under the waterline. And then, of course, the whole voyage changed. When they're inside, so as you say, yes, they, re they are realistic to the fact that they are a target. What were they able to hear? Are they able to hear the torpedo approaching? Are they able to hear them whoosh past? I don't know. What's the sensation of that? Well, the, the, the naval men on board who are in the, the forward hold, um, they certainly recognise the sound. The guys in the, in the rear holds, they probably heard the sound, but not being naval men, they probably didn't recognise it. But the, the guys in the forward hold, they knew they were under attack. Uh, and, of course, when that first torpedo hit... That everybody felt the impact, uh, and some people were even knocked over by it. And some people had been, some POWs had been on deck, and the Japanese hurried them back into the holds and then battened down the hatches. So they're now, uh, have they got any light in there? Yeah, absolutely. They, they had an electric light. Uh, and somebody, according to Dennis, some, somebody said, don't panic until the lights goes off. 
and of course slowly the light dimmed and then went off and then they were in complete darkness because the holds, which were therefore the only other way light could get into the, the that's all, hold covers I should say, the only way light could get into the holds, had been closed off. So they're in complete darkness. They know the ship is sinking. They can hear water coming through the hole in the ship. And you can imagine how that felt. How many holds were there and where were the men placed? Uh, there were multiple holds, but the POWs were in the first three. So starting at the bow of the ship with hold number one and then ending up about under the superstructure in hold number three. So with a timeline of them leaving Hong Kong, going along this east coast, they're hit. When are they hit and how many hours are they now sitting there? Uh, they're, they're hit on October the 1st. The ship starts to, to list. The Japanese take it under tow and try and tow it back towards the Chinese coast. And that towing goes on for about, I suppose, 12 or more hours, uh, during which the men have no food, no water. They cannot go outside to use the toilet. So the holds become worse and worse. Conditions become worse and worse. Until eventually, the foundering ship actually hits a sandbank and the Japanese realise they can tow it no further. What did Dennis tell you about, I mean, in, you know, the atmosphere in there? I mean, obviously, if they can hear the water filling, there's a desperation. They, they, they're sitting there in the dark. They're, the sewage situation is awful. They would, some of the men would have already been ill. What did he, you know, in terms of their thoughts or anything like that? I think initially, of course, they, they were all, I think, I don't know, there must be a stronger word than concerned or worried. They were terrified. But they felt, you know, there's Japanese troops on board as well, so, so it can't be that bad. But then they heard Japanese ships docking with the Lisbon Maru and taking the Japanese soldiers off, and they realised they'd been abandoned. And at that point, when the ship went quiet above them, something had to be done. And it was then that Stuart, who was a senior British officer on board, commanded that somebody get up the ladders and open up the hatches. And fortunately, there was a, um, a young ex-butcher on board who had a large knife with him. And a British officer scrambled up to the top and actually undid some of the hatches and let light into the hold for the first time in 24 hours. The men go up, they're scrambling up the ladders, they're told to, or the ladder, they're told to control themselves so that the ladder isn't broken too early. It would, uh, I know that there was one ladder in one hold that does break. Absolutely. The, well, there were three holds, the, the forward hold, number one, number two, number three. The hatch on number two hold was the one the men broke out of. And as soon as men saw that light, there was a mad scrabble for the ladder, the one ladder, as you say. And people, it's like something from Dante's Inferno, people were throwing other people off the ladder for that few moments of utter panic until Stuart got control. And Stuart was a highly respected officer, and he brought the men back under control, and they started having a more orderly evacuation. And after the evacuation had been going on for a while, and some men were on the decks, those men then lifted the hatches from hold number one and hold number three to allow the naval guys in the front and the artillery guys in the back to escape as well. What's Dennis's own story during that time? I mean, he's in hold number two. What happened to him after that? Well, he got out with his mates, and he sat on the deck. And he recalled seeing a British officer, who the guys didn't really have much respect for, who had a life jacket. And that officer gave his life jacket to a non-swimmer, and that officer was never seen again. So that's the one thing Dennis told me about that, that moment of the experience. Most of the time, Dennis did not speak directly about the Lisbon Maru itself. He spoke about his comrades and the POW camps and the liberation. But that's the one memory he did tell me about. So he stays on the deck. So he never leaves? He, he does. In the end, Dennis jumped into the water uh, and swam for the islands and uh, scrabbled ashore there. 
So he's, he's on the shore there, and so he would be later picked up by Japanese? He must have been. Again, he never told me that story explicitly, but that was... We, we seem to be going from horror story to horror story, that the men, when they were picked up by the Japanese from those islands, again, had had virtually no food or drink. Maybe... I think he told me he had a raw potato. And maybe, in fact, if my memory is just coming back, I think he may have been picked up by the Japanese Navy, because if I'm not mistaken, he told me that the Japanese Navy guy got, gave him a raw potato to eat. But then they were brought ashore to Shanghai. And on the dockyards of Shanghai, they're standing there, they're all wet, they've had no food, they, they've got virtually no clothes. It's freezing cold weather. Uh, and you know, that, that's when the attrition started all over again. 828 men died in the water around Lisbon Maru. A further 200 died shortly afterwards of exposure and disease. He's in Shanghai. What happens then? After a couple of days in Shanghai, the Japanese um, bring another ship over. And this ship takes the survivors over to Moji in Japan. And from Moji, they get on a train, and that train drops half of them off at Osaka number one B camp, and half of them at Osaka number two B camp, which is also called Kobe House. And that's where Dennis was. Was that dockyard work? or? Uh, Kobe was indeed dockyard work, yes. Um, and of course, that gave even more problems later, because as the war progressed, um, the Americans started targeting J Japanese dockyards, and I have a photo I shared with Dennis, uh, taken from a B-29, showing incendiary bombs streaming down into the dockyards very close to where he was. And again, you have to wonder, how did he survive? And he did tell me about being on fire watch that night, and at some point just giving up and going and standing in the green outside the POW camp building, uh, because it was the only place that wasn't on fire. So it's just ridiculous what these guys went through. What was his work? Just a, a stevedore. So, so just moving cargo, no, nothing special. Except, of course, again, Dennis did not tell me this story explicitly, but other stevedores told me that that was actually a prime job because some of the cargo being transported was food. And a clever stevedore, and it's the same in any dock in the world, especially in those days, a clever stevedore could always hide a couple of cans of food or a bit of a bag of rice or whatever. So, in fact, the, the dock work, although it was hard physical manual work, was probably the most popular because it did give you the chance to get some more nutrition. So he's at Kobe House. Is he with other Lisbon Maru survivors there? Or? Um, yes, Kobe House was primarily Lisbon Maru survivors. I believe there were others there as well. But they, they all knew each other very well. And his experience, Dennis's experience, or his memories, I should say, were primarily of that Kobe House time. When I asked him about other people in the Royal Scots who he had fought with or had been in Shamshui Po, he often could hardly remember them. But he remembered his fellow POWs at Kobe very, very well indeed. In Shamshui Po, they were only there for a bit over eight months. In Kobe, they were there for almost three years. So it was a very, very long-term experience compared to the earlier ones. Did he talk to you about, you know, the, the fact that you are malnutritioned, um, that you've been through so much? Did it, you know, when he arrives back in England at the age of 25, what sort of impact did it had on him? I mean, I hear stories of people who couldn't stand food waste for the rest of their lives and, and, and would save little bits, just tiny bits in the fridge, just because you do not waste food. Uh, Dennis was certainly anti-Japanese when he returned, uh, and he was a very tough character, of course. But he was, he was a survivor, um, but it obviously had a very major impact on his life. And it wasn't until he returned to Japan that he started to sort of compartmentalise uh, the idea that the modern Japan of today is not the same as the old Japan, the imperial Japan that he saw back in the 1940s. Um, but that was, 